You're unmuted. Good morning. Uh, the meeting will come to order. Welcome to the uh, September 7th, 2023 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Welcome back, colleagues, after our uh, recess. Uh, I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, joined by Vice Chair Catherine Stephanie and Supervisor Connie Chan. Uh, and the committee clerk today is Stephanie Cabrera. And our thanks to the team at SFGov TV for staffing this meeting. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, thank you. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices that you may be using. Alternatively, you may submit written public comment by email to the government audit and committee clerk, me, Stephanie Cabrera at stephanie.cabrera, C as in California, A, B as in Bay, R, E, R, A, at sfgov.org. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and included as part of the official file. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of September 19th, unless otherwise stated. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, and uh, why don't we go ahead and call the first item. Thank you. Item number one is a hearing on strategies for apartmental or apartment building fires, prevention, and support for victims, including current city protocols and resources available to those facing displacement, and requesting the San Francisco Fire Department and Human Services Agency to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the call-in number scrolling across your screen. When prompted, enter the meeting ID, then press pound twice. If you have not done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, and colleagues, uh, today uh, I'm holding uh, this hearing that I called for on fire prevention and the city's response protocol for displaced residents. I want to speak to it briefly, then we'll hear from, um, from presenters. Um, but I do want to give some context. Um, and, you know, this is a message received often late at night or first thing in the morning that I know all of us um, on this board uh, dread, which is the, the residential fire that's occurred in our district um, and our constituents. Um, once we've ascertained that they are safe, they are still really in the blink of an eye, have in a position where they've lost everything, um, often nearly all their possessions or all their possessions, um, and are suddenly without a home um, unexpectedly. Um, and really in need of assistance. Um, since the, the start of 2022, um, there have been uh, at least um, 17 fires in my district, in District 5, uh, that have resulted in displacement, leaving more than 200 residents 
um, most of whom live in rent-controlled buildings uh, needing immediate uh, housing and shelter. Um, what we have learned in, in my office over the last few years that I've been in office is that, um, that our office, myself and my staff, um, physically going to the scene of a fire as we have done in uh, nearly all of these incidents that I've uh, referenced is, uh, is crucial. Um, and the reasons, uh, as we'll explore in the hearing today, uh, is not just to offer um, comfort and moral support uh, to folks who are displaced, but it's also um, because we end up playing uh, an important role uh, by going uh, and, and assisting victims directly. And while we have hardworking staff in various departments uh, that are tasked with fire response, um, far too many people end up falling through the cracks and not getting the help they need. Um, I think there are real gaps in our city's uh, fire response um, and I need I, I, I believe we need to be doing more to make sure victims experiencing the severe trauma of losing their homes are getting uh, the help that they need. Uh, this past August we saw in the span of just one week two major fires in my district on uh, the Divisadero corridor. The first one was at uh, 1600 block of McAllister Street, the second at the intersection uh, hate, uh, and, and Divisadero. Uh, more than a dozen tenants, uh, some of whom lived in their home for decades, were uh, displaced uh, at each fire. And while we saw and appreciated that Red Cross responded um, to each of those, uh, we also saw that by being um, on scene uh, and, and getting contact info of victims ourselves, we were able to connect and help assist uh, more folks than we otherwise would have. And I misspoke when I said this, this last August, that was actually the August, uh, the previous August. We've had other fires since then. Um, we have also seen that what started as fires in a single unit uh, in these older low-rise and mid-rise rent control buildings quickly spread to engulf much of the entire uh, structures, uh, resulting in buildings being entirely uninhabitable and displacing all of the residents, um, and those buildings continue to be uninhabitable today. Um, I think it is uh, clear to uh, most involved, most who are involved in this, and we'll certainly hear directly from the fire department, um, that had, the, had some of these buildings been outfitted with sprinklers, uh, which are not required of these buildings currently, um, there is little doubt uh, that the fires would have caused less damage and potentially have been contained to um, an individual room or unit instead of spreading uh, and displacing the entire building. Um, in March of this year, um, we had another incident that I want to note. Um, we, we learned of a devastating late night fire at uh, 120 Hyde Street, an SRO hotel here in the Tenderloin in my district. A majority of the 28 residents uh, displaced there were receiving housing support from the Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project, TGI-JP. Um, and after connecting the impacted residents with city departments, we were really struck by the, 
the lack of coordination, the lack of urgency, uh, with nearly a week passing and many of the residents without stable housing uh, forcing TGIJP to use uh, their funds to pay for hotel rooms and step in uh, where uh, housing was not being provided. In the context of that, my office dealt with six different city departments and agencies in an effort to figure out how to place the impacted residents into temporary housing. Um, countless hours uh, trying to do that. We were finally able to find um, more permanent placements uh, after a week of, of uh, extensive work and outreach. Um, I, I think that experience reaffirmed what we have experienced in previous fires and, and in, in fact what may be increasingly the case that the, that the city um, can and should be doing much more to provide a coordinated response uh, for fire victims. I, I, I want to be very clear that my purpose in this hearing is not at all to lay blame on any one department or individual for the fact that I believe our, that our city's response here um, is insufficient. In fact, to the contrary, my experience has been uh, tremendously impressed by the fire department's response to the fires, the, de the, the manner in which the fire department deals with victims on the scene, the uh, folks at HSA who we'll be hearing from who work, I think, often doing what's far beyond their job, de job description in all hours of the night to support people, um, the Red Cross volunteers who are volunteers. So I, I actually think this is an area where we want to figure out um, how to have a better system um, and, and appreciate that a lot of the folks involved have been going above and beyond uh, to try to help people um, in a situation where the systems are inadequate to provide uh, that support. Um, I, I, so that's my hope, is that we, we have a solutions-oriented hearing and can come, come away from this with a better understanding of how we work together to improve the systems uh, that we've got to support victims. So before I turn it over to departments uh, for their presentations, um, I want to acknowledge and, and appreciate uh, the efforts of uh, my colleague on this committee, uh, Supervisor Chan, who just uh, earlier this week uh, announced uh, her uh, focus and attention on some sprinkling issues that run parallel to some of the things we'll be discussing, particularly looking at ADUs and newer, newer construction um, and other related fire safety issues. Um, and so I'm looking forward to, to that uh, and, and working with you on those efforts. I also want to uh, recognize and thank uh, Dan Torres of the uh, Sprinkler Fitters uh, Local 483. Um, who has uh, been in discussions with us around, uh, particularly around the latest technology that is available uh, sh should there be increased requirements for uh, landlords of some of these buildings to provide uh, and add sprinkling, uh, showing really the latest technology. And, and I was, um, uh, he, we, we went with uh, Mr. Torres and others on a tour of a building that had actually done a major uh, upgrade to add sprinklers. Uh, we did that earlier this year, and we're really encouraged to learn about how some of the new technologies have really brought the cost significantly down, um, and also, equally importantly, have eliminated, in many cases, the need to displace residents while doing uh, sprinkler retrofit, um, which I think in the past has often been one of the barriers to, uh, to sprinklering these older rent control buildings is the 
inconvenience and the cost involved with displacing residents for that kind of uh, retrofit. And increasingly, it seems that the new technologies allow that work to be done without displacement. So uh, with that, I would like to turn it over to departments for their presentations. We will first, and, and I want to thank all the folks who will be speaking, who have all been working with our office and providing us data and details and answering probably far too many questions. So thank you along the way. First, we will hear from our fire marshal, Ken Coughlin, uh, who will talk about uh, the, some of the data around fires and fire prevention. Then we'll hear from Doris Barone, who's the Director of Disaster Preparedness and Response uh, at HSA. Um, and then uh, I understand that uh, DBI's Acting Deputy Director Matt Green is here today um, as well, uh, not with a presentation, but will be available uh, if the committee has any uh, questions for DBI. So with that, um, welcome, Fire Marshal. The floor is yours. Um, good morning, Supervisor Preston, Supervisor uh, Stephanie, and Supervisor Chan. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak on the strategies for fire prevention in residential apartment buildings. Uh, when I was asked to present at this committee, my first thought was that the discussion was similar to one that we had in 2016. Um, after concerns that residents were being purposely displaced by fire, many of them in the Mission District. As many may remember, in 2016, Fires in large apartment buildings resulted in property damage, loss of housing, and in some instances, loss of life. Those seemingly too frequent and concentrated fires within one neighborhood highlighted the board's need to examine the city's fire safety policies in residential buildings. Um, at Supervisor Campos' request in 2015, a policy analysis report on the impact of installing sprinkler systems in residential buildings was prepared by the Budget and Analyst Office where they examined three key points here. The facts on status of residential buildings with sprinklers, breakdown of buildings, that, uh, types of buildings and the causes of these fires, the estimated cost of retrofitting the buildings with new sprinkler systems, and the best practices for incentivizing landlords to install these systems. This report could easily be found online and read by all, but I'd like to highlight a few points discussed with the report within the report and look what the fire department and the Board of Supervisors have accomplished since then. First, uh, I'm going to provide some data, and I will, I will say some data is a little skewed because especially when it comes to displaced residents, um, it, there's no one location where all that information is kept. Um, when we queue or <coughs> query the information, we have to go through computer-aided dispatch reports, uh, and some fire reports to get the information. So some of the numbers that Supervisor Preston, you mentioned earlier, you have a little more data than we actually have. Um, so um, you may see the numbers may be off. Um, but uh, let's look at some of the trends over the last 13 years. As you can see, uh, but in 2016, the report stated that there were 252 two alarm or greater residential fires from 2004 to 2016. I researched a little bit further after that date, from 2017 to August of 2023, there have only been 112 two alarm or greater fires. At this pace, we're on schedule to have approximately 115 for uh, by the end of this year. That's over a seven-year period. And that is a reduction, luckily, of 15%. Um, looking at this chart, we can only see that we have a number of greater alarms, those with two or more. So as the number of one alarm fires, what the fire department calls working fires, has decreased. 
Can, can I just one yes. question on the data? And, and, and thank you for pointing out on the, and I should just make clear for the public record, that the numbers that I cited, and as you say, that there aren't, they're not official fire department numbers at this time. Uh, we just drew that from the, we get the, through the alert system of the city, get notified, and then when, when a fire, when it's resolved, there's uh, usually a, a number there of people displaced. Uh, so my staff took those, added those up, and that, that, those are the numbers of displacements. Uh, but, but as you say, that's not an official fire department exactly, and I number. Think, I think yeah, it, the, but the other thing I wanted to point out, because and uh, the reason I'm, I'm cutting in in the middle of your presentation is because I think this applies to most of the slides and I just wanted to clarify one thing because the last year in all these slides shows like this huge drop but I think that's just because we're not completed with the year. We still have four more months to go. Right. So it, okay so these are I just want to be clear for the public like that last year these aren't trend lines it's not like there's a huge drop off you mentioned that we may be on track to a we're on, exactly. We're on track to have a better year than we did last year, and what has been mentioned is 2022 was a bad year. I'll be right. honest with you. And we'll right. But but that. so the last part of each one of these that shows the down, and we'll see this, I think, on all of your charts. It's it as is, of August. Is the as of August? So really, it's kind of half a year's data. Correct. Yep. Thank right. you. So uh, this uh, slide shows that in 2022 there was about a 25 percent increase. A number of fires compared to the previous year. This is similar to what happened in 2016 when fires increased about 12 percent. Um, the spike was noticeable because each year um, the numbers were decreasing. So as you see, um, let me go back to, yeah, we're decreasing. Uh, still overall, building fires have been in a downward trend minus the one spike in 2022. Good news is that over the last 13 years, the reduction of building fires of all types also meant that the number of residential fires decreased, which should mean that fewer people, excuse me, are being displaced. So as you can see, we have uh, one or two family dwellings, multifamily dwellings over there on the right and the bottom, and then a total of all different uh, fires happening. Again, 2023 is an incomplete year and may not show that much of a, as much of a decrease as shown. Uh, breaking it down further, we can see that 90% of the fires occur in build buildings classified as low-rise. Those are the buildings with the highest floor being less than 75 feet above the occupiable level above the street, typically seven, eight-story buildings. And these typically also have less occupants. As we look further into occupancies that have historically had many fires and displaced residents, we can see that in SROs, um, the fires have remained low since the San Francisco Fire Code requirement of retroactively installing sprinklers. Again, except for the 2022 spike in building fires overall. It also shows that with more fires, the number of persons displaced will increase. And all it takes is one good fire to put 25 to 50 residents out of their home. We can see that uh, high-rise building fires have remained steady at about 20 per year and the displacements are relatively low, but also that too, that one fired in an unsprinkled high rise, such as 440 Davis, can easily displace 50 or more residents. My research uh, also highlighted that while building fires have decreased, outside fires of all types, trash, grass, encampment fires, etc., have continued to increase greatly. Do you know the city is on track for 2023 to exceed pre-pandemic outside numbers by more than two and a half times in 2019. 
unfortunately, uh, working with the Bureau of Fire Investigation, that's, some of these fires have been cause for some of our greatest uh, fires uh, out there, be the encampment fires next to a building. While some residents believe that more fires are happening in their neighborhood, we went ahead and plotted building fires on a map and it shows that fires are occurring throughout the city relatively evenly uh, with slightly more concentration than Tenderloin, Mission, and Bayview neighborhoods. And unfortunately, this has been a consistent trend over the years. So as you can see, as you go through the years, they are spread out. And then you put them all together over the last six years, you can see that in the Tenderloin, again, the Mission and the Bayview have a slightly higher concentration of fires. While the fire department is not only there to extinguish a fire, but the Bureau of Fire Prevention is the custodian of records, the fire prevention investigation is there to help those displaced by a fire solely by completing and attesting to the resident's post-fire situation in the, with the fire displacement verification form that you see to help them attain housing sooner. So this gives a little quick background on sprinklers. Automatic sprinkler systems are intended to aid in the control of fires and protect against injury and loss of life in the event of a fire. Unlike what's seen in the movie, sprinkler systems are only activated in the direct area where a fire is located, as opposed to where smoke can be detected. The San Francisco codes require the installation of sprinkler systems in new and renovated apartment buildings and specific locations in existing apartment buildings. Our codes require installation of sprinklers in new construction, existing commercial buildings, tourist hotels, and single room occupancy hotels with more than 20 rooms. They're also required to be installed in existing apartment buildings when a habitable floor is either added on top or down in the basement. Now this report suggested some safety improvements. And one of the first ones they would, as a first step to increase safety, the board could instead expand uh, requirements to install hardwired sprinkler detectors in apartment buildings. This is what the report stated. Currently property owners are only required to install hardwired smoke detectors in buildings that are newer construction. Positive thing came out of this is the policy suggestion brought about the current fire alarm sleeping area upgrade requirement that many of you heard of and are attempting to comply with today. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, the compliance date was extended two years to July 1st of this year, which gave owners a total of seven years to complete the work. While early resident notification of fire saves lives, it does not help people being displaced. Item two of the report had asked for consideration to require installation of sprinklers in existing apartment buildings, and that they should target high-risk buildings, including buildings that have repeated failure to abate fire safety violations. This suggestion brought about a board-sponsored fire code addition that allows the fire marshal to require building owners who are habitual fire code violators to upgrade their life safety system based on the risk. Um, this includes fire alarm and or sprinklers. To date, the fire marshal office has not required any owner to install sprinklers because of consistent violations on the property. Current uh, residential sprinkler requirements. Sprinkler requirements are generally governed by the building and fire code provisions enacted at the time of the building's construction or alteration permit is finalized. However, ordinances that amended the building, fire and housing codes have required the retroactive installation of sprinklers in specific types of buildings and when a building changes uses. For example, tourist hotels. All public areas of tourist hotels are required to have approved sprinklers. Public areas include lobby, ballrooms, meeting rooms, restaurants, bars, cocktails, etc. 
um, basement and garbage chutes in residential buildings, apartment houses and hotels. Uh, any compartment room in a basement that contains more than 1,800 square feet must have a sprinkler system. Garbage chutes in buildings, except in those chutes when they're in the dwelling unit, must have sprinklers. Laundry chutes, garbage, trash, soil, linen rooms, and compartments all must be sprinklered. And in new residential buildings, since 2008, newly constructed residential buildings intended for permanent occupancy are required to have sprinkler systems. Apartment buildings, three or more units, are required to have sprinklers that meet NFPA 13 standards, and one or two family dwellings have 13D standards. What has been done? The building fire and housing codes contain the following provisions for commercial and residential buildings. So these are some positive things the board and the fire department has worked with over the years. For example, in high-rise buildings passed in 1993, required that all existing high-rise buildings, so existing high-rise buildings were pre-July 1st, 1975. Before that time, they were not required to have sprinklers. Since that time in 1975, all high-rise buildings constructed have sprinklers. They were given 12-year period uh, by February 15, 2006 to install those sprinklers. This included only tourist hotels, mixed-use commercial occupancy buildings where the occupants are temporary. Apartments and condominiums, residential high-rides, they were not required to retroactively install sprinklers, but that has changed as of January 1st of this year. In 2022, the 2022 fire code now requires owners of, uh, of these 125 plus residential unsprinklered properties to comply with their new requirements over the next 12 years. SRO hotels in 2001, every residential hotel containing 20 or more guest rooms were required to maintain an approved sprinkler system. And we see the results of that. San Francisco's requirements to install sprinklers in apartment buildings conform to NFPA standards and are comparable to other cities. While NFPA recommends sprinkler installation to protect lives and properties, the task force did not, did not identify any cities that require sprinkler installation in existing apartment buildings except during renovation. Policies to require sprinkler installation in existing apartment buildings, we feel, should define the list of eligible apartment buildings and establish priorities for sprinkler installation. Consideration to expand requirements to install, sprinkler, to install sprinklers in existing apartment buildings should include obtaining more specific information regarding the causes of fires and how safety systems and construction types perform so that expanded requirements could target the highest risk buildings. The Fire Department's Bureau of Fire Prevention and Investigation should assist in developing these objective criteria for assessing fire risk and identifying buildings that pose the highest fire safety risk including those that have a repeated failure to abate fire safety violations and should prioritize high-risk buildings for retroactive sprinkler requirements. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Coughlin. And uh, I do want to, uh, as you were describing what has sprinklers, I also want to recognize um, our board president, um, Peskin, Aaron Peskin, who, was, who worked, I know his office worked very closely um, with the fire department and with you around some of those expanded requirements, particularly the ones you described on the, the high rise um, and the retroactive application over the next uh, decade or so, yeah. uh, phasing that in. So thank you for your work on that and thank you, President Peskin, uh, as well. Uh, unless we have questions, we may have some after, but I wanna go through our various presenters first. Um, so let's hear uh, next from uh, Doris Barone, Director of Disaster Preparedness and uh, response at HSA. Welcome.
morning, and uh, thank you for having me here today to talk a little bit about how um, the city um, coordinates response and provides um, support services for um, households displaced from fires. Um, I wanted to start a bit, as you mentioned, actually, as we started, about um, with how we coordinate our response here in San Francisco. Um, it's a multi-agency coordination, um, and we really focus on um, bringing resources together from various departments and also rapidly stabilizing um, the households that have been displaced. And so our focus is to be on scene, provide immediate assistance, and ensure that households have immediate supports um, to be able to move into recovery. Um, the four main departments um, that work through um, this coordinated response are the San Francisco Human Services Agency, which I represent. I apologize. Um, the San Francisco Fire Department, uh, the Department of Emergency Management, and the American Red Cross. Uh, the, um, the Human Services Agency um, provides um, a variety of stabilization services, um, both immediate um, and short term. Um, we provide a housing subsidy program and we also provide hoteling support to households that um, require some extended hoteling as they try to determine their next steps. Uh, the fire department is lead on scene. They determine um, if there is a possibility of displaced households and they initiate the response um, by activating the Red Cross and also notifying the Department of Emergency Management. Uh, the Department of Emergency Management is really our citywide coordination center. Um, they um, keep a pulse on the various events that are happening. Um, they track fires um, and um, determine um, if an event may be scaling up and we may need additional resources on scene to support those displaced households. And the American Red Cross is really the first point of contact for most households when they are displaced and receiving immediate services. A part of our coordinated response is really to be able to activate um, emergency services um, for small or large residential fires. We've seen small fires um, where we have one or two households displaced, and we also have very large fires. We have seen multiple households that require activation of an emergency shelter, a respite center, and additional services on scene. Um, and finally, our coordinated response allows for more streamlined access and referral to stabilization services. So we uh, would like households to be able to have one point of contact where they go um, for initial support and then referral to other agencies or community-based organizations for some continued support. We provide um, various supports for displaced households. I'm, I'm gonna touch a bit on um, on the various. Um, we provide immediate support and stabilization, um, financial support um, in, uh, by way of a card or credit card uh, for displaced tenants through the American Red Cross. Uh, medical and mental health support also supported by the Red Cross um, in coordination um, with various city departments. Um, and then shelter, um, and that can be anywhere between a hotel stay or an actual emergency shelter that we stand up. Uh, we um, aim to mitigate potential homelessness through a focus on temporary emergency shelter and housing linkages. What we have seen is that households need a significant amount of support in figuring out that next step. People are in shock. 
they don't know where to go. Um, and so we want to focus on ensuring folks have somewhere to stay immediately, connecting them with housing subsidies that exist um, for folks that are displaced due to fire, and then also providing linkages to other housing alternatives, connections with um, MOHCD or Department of Homelessness to be able to allow them to see the full array of services that may be available to them around housing. Um, and then we connect households to city and community resources to move closer to recovery. Um, households uh, require a lot of case management after fires. We see that it's not just about finding a new place to stay, it's around ongoing case management, it's around finding culturally competent support, support services in languages um, that, that they may require, um, navigation of legal aid and tenants' rights, um, and then connection of, with public benefits as well. I'd like to walk a little bit through um, the response process because I, I think that there may be um, some questions around this and how um, we work together to respond during a fire. Um, we begin with an event and really fire being on the scene and determining if there might be displaced households. Um, when they do anticipate that, um, they make a direct request to the Red Cross and alert them of a fire that is happening locally. In the background, there is city coordination that begins. Um, SFHSA, we are notified um, of the potential displacement, and we have on-call staff 24 hours that is monitoring um, our, our fire line um, and tracking the needs that may arise from any fire um, in San Francisco. We move into the response area where the Red Cross um, pulls together a team of volunteers um, that can take anywhere from one to three hours from the moment that they are notified. Um, these are volunteers from the region. Um, and they come to the scene to do an initial assessment of the displaced households and determine the level of assistance needed. We see households that have um, supports in place. They can stay with family. They have renter's insurance. They may not need a lot of help. And then we have households that really do require some immediate assistance, and that's what the Red Cross is there for. Continuing the coordination in the background, um, the Red Cross, the fire department, SFHSA and DEM, Department of Emergency Management, are all coordinating, are all talking to one another, sharing the information so we can, again, track the fire, the number of displacements, and also so we can see if needs are escalating. Immediate assistance, so the Red Cross arrives on scene, does their assistance, uh, does their assessment, and then they begin to provide funds as appropriate um, for hoteling, clothing, food, transportation, or other immediate needs. They have their own formula for how they establish the amount of money each household will receive um, for immediate assistance. Uh, they receive it, again, in the form of a client assistance card. This is a credit card that they can take and use, um, and it's expected to last two to three days. So this is very short-term financial assistance for households. When the Red Cross assesses households um, and does intake, they ask for a release of information. At that moment, they ask households, if you need additional assistance in the coming days, it, is it okay to share your information with city agencies and departments that may be able to support you further in next steps? we get a variety of responses, but the Red Cross shares with us a summary of the displacements and also shares with us the number of households and details of each household that require additional assistance. 
We move into stabilization. So event response and immediate assistance all happen immediately when the fire is occurring and once the fire um, is under control. So that's generally in between a three to six hour window. It can be shorter, it can be longer depending on the fire. Stabilization really is about 24 hours after the event. Um, we begin to um, outreach to displaced households based on the information that the Red Cross has shared with us. We conduct our own intake and interviews with households, um, and we provide some basic guidance on next steps. Uh, we can offer hotel extensions um, for a maximum of three weeks, um, and um, we work with um, households to identify the right location um, or the right hotel stay for them. Then we begin to work through determination or need for um, an emergency rental assistance subsidy. Uh, so we run um, the emergency rental assistance program, which offers um, displaced households by a fire um, a maximum of four years of subsidy assistance. This means that we pay the difference between the amount of rent that they were previously paying and the amount that they will have to pay for a new unit. Eligible um, households then receive some ongoing case management from um, HSA, um, but it is event specific and short term. So it's really specific to immediate housing needs. Um, and some ongoing support really is around the Red Cross and HSA continuing to make referrals to city departments and community partners for additional assistance. So again, we're working together, city departments and our community-based organizations. We really rely on them to help us do a lot of this work. And so how are we doing? And I think that this is um, really kind of gonna be the meat of the discussion and maybe the questions a little bit later on is, you know, we focus on stabilization, guidance, and rapid rehousing. And so um, we, um, we again provide event-specific and short-term um, case coordination um, for displaced households. Um, just to put this into context, um, in the uh, fiscal year 22-23, we supported 74 displaced households. We have one full-time staff that manages all client stabilization um, and all new displaced household cases that come to our office. Um, what we have seen, again, is that there is a significant need for long-term case management services. Um, most displacements, in our experience, we have seen are over four years. So it is very clear to us that households receive temporary maximum four-year subsidy assistance, but there is no additional support for those households past that timeline if they cannot return to their unit. And so providing this long-term case management uh, really allows for households to plan, to have peace of mind, and better understand where to access and leverage additional resources so that they can find some permanent housing. In terms of rapid rehousing, um, with the help of our hotel um, supports and the emergency rental assistance subsidy program, most households enter temporary housing within three weeks of the event. Um, this varies, but that is around the area uh, of the time area that we've been able to stabilize and support tenants with finding new housing. One of the challenges here is that um, tenants also 
have to go through the regular process of finding a unit. They have to apply for a unit, identify a down payment, they have to go through a credit check, they have to go through all of those processes. Um, and often tenants need a longer runway of time at a hotel in order to actually organize themselves enough to find a unit. And so what we're seeing is that households that actually had renter's insurance um, in advance were much more successful and felt um, uh, more calm and had more time to be able to put a plan into place. Um, Renters Insurance provides cash assistance for hoteling. Um, they provide cash assistance to replace personal belongings, and they also receive loss of use coverage. Generally, that covers that down payment. It covers furnishing a new apartment and all of the additional items that are needed to reestablish a household moving forward. I think I, I just want to share that um, we do work very hard to support many of these households. Um, what we are seeing is that where we need additional support, in addition to case management and working on some kind of a um, campaign to um, you know, highlight renter's insurance and the value of that is we need support with individuals that are really vulnerable. We see a lot of older adults that again have been living in their households for 15, 20, 30 plus years um, and need a lot of wraparound services. We are seeing um, families that are living in crowded housing conditions, multi-generational households that require significant assistance. And while we lean on our community organizations and our nonprofit organizations for support, they often also don't have the funding or the staff to be able to provide the level of support that's needed, both short-term and long-term. Um, so that I'd like to conclude my presentation and welcome any questions. Thank you, Ms. Barone. I did have just a couple clarifying uh, questions. One, can you tell me a little more about the, the extensions? Um, you, you mentioned, I, I think we're all familiar with Red Cross goes out, potential, you know, offers basically um, some funds for folks to design to cover a couple days basically yes. in a hotel. And, and then uh, I'm, if you can clarify who gets an extension, who doesn't, and then one of the gaps that we've seen is a lot of times in that emergency situation, people go and they you know, sleep on a friend's couch or mm -hmm. something and then have trouble accessing. And because they're not, it, it, my understanding is if you could take the Red Cross's funds and go to a hotel, and then you contact HSA, you can get an extension. That's some, correct. Some, under certain circumstances. So if you could clarify those circumstances, but also is it accurate that you have to take and enter into with the Red Cross that hotel in order to be eligible for those initial weeks of shelter coverage? Yeah, the, the Red Cross card, because it's meant to cover a variety of um, of, of things for households. We do encourage um, displaced households to use the Red Cross card for at least one night of hoteling um, to demonstrate that they are in need of some immediate short-term hoteling. Most households do use that. Um, the households that don't do go back to the Red Cross um, and share their situation with them, and we then begin to coordinate around the need for care for those households. And so, 
the vast majority of households that receive the client assistance card do use it for hoteling. There's a very small group of folks that don't use it for that and then have to come back to the Red Cross to coordinate additional services. We provide three weeks of hoteling um, maximum. There are uh, various situations where we can extend that um, and generally that is when a tenant <clears throat> or a household is in the process of entering a new, a new unit and requiring an extra week of hoteling to kind of as gap housing um, before they can enter their, their new unit. So in general, we don't, um, if households are expressing a need for hoteling, we do not deny them hotel access. We do not deny them the ability to access hoteling um, from the human services agency, but there does need to be a coordination between the Red Cross and the human services agency to determine the level of need. But, but just so I'm clear, the, the only folks who will get the assist, assistance on a hotel is folks who have worked with Red Cross and been been provided assistance that that's the first step that is the first they step. they can't come directly three days later to hsa and say i've been sleeping on my friend's couch i have to move to a hotel now you would you would direct them to red cross we would direct them to red cross and that is the the response framework that we have established with the red cross and we do we have households that say we are taking care of our own needs and they come back to us a week or two later saying that they need support and so we create a, a bit of a recovery team with the red cross to make sure that they are being supported um, in the way that's appropriate for thank the you and then are there criteria around income or other restrictions for eligibility for those potentially several weeks of hotel stay? For the hoteling, no. Um, for our um, subsidy program, um, there are income eligibility requirements. Great, thank you. Um, and the other thing I was wondering, and, I, and, and let me just say this with my own experience in District 5, has been quite a broad range. I've you know been at fires where like Red Cross is out there yes. immediately. They are helping folks. They have multiple people out there. And then I've been at other fires where like I'm calling the chief because it's hours later. Mm -hmm. There's people huddled on the sidewalk, and there's no one there assisting them. Right. And so, um, and, and I will note, and I'm curious if it, if there's any explanation. I will note it's increasingly the latter. In other words, when I took office and I would be in a fire scene, it felt like, you know, and I understand pandemic may have impacted volunteer availability and so forth. There may be many, re but, but early on, it really in the first year or so that I was in office when I was out at a fire, Red Cross was, was on it and out there to the point now where unless we really intervene and express the urgency, it takes hours. So is, is, the, is that, I don't know if that's a citywide phenomenon or, or not, that's my anecdotal experience, so I'm just curious if, if, if that's something you're seeing, but also just like for HSA in the relationship with the Red Cross, is there a discussion around that? You mentioned one to three hours. As mm -hmm. the, I mean, that's a lifetime of difference when people have been burnt out of their homes and are standing on the corner with their kids and their grandparents whether 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 the Red Cross is going to come out three hours later or within an hour, it is 
is a world of difference. So if you could just comment on the on yeah, the, what I'd, the what the experiences and the understanding and the expectations around the response time. Sure, yeah, and just for some context, so the Red Cross used to have a really um, significant volunteer cadre here in San Francisco. Lots of folks volunteered, were trained up, and were able to do um, emergency response or fire response. Um, that cadre has dwindled, um, and the Red Cross has faced some challenges in recruiting and retaining more volunteers, especially here in San Francisco. The Red Cross is currently moving to a regional model where they are calling upon volunteers from the region to be able to respond to a fire because they are short-staffed, which means that the reason that it takes one to three hours is because if they find two volunteers here in San Francisco, it's a pretty quick response. If they can't find volunteers here in San Francisco, they have to go regional, and that can take quite a bit of time to get teams together and then move into the area for response. Another piece on that is that for safety reasons, the Red Cross established a buddy system. So they cannot deploy out just one volunteer. So sometimes they have a situation where they've identified one volunteer, but they can't find a second. Um, and so they are struggling to bring volunteers online to be able to deploy them out quickly. Um, we have been having discussions with the Red Cross and the Department of Emergency Management about the length of time um, and some problem solving around that. Uh, what we currently have in place is that if the Red Cross feels that they cannot get a volunteer group out in less than three hours, we've asked them to notify us, HSA and Department of Emergency Management, so that we can deploy our personnel out. So the Human Services Agency, we have a duty officer, a fire duty officer, that's available 24 hours and can deploy to a fire scene if the Red Cross indicates that they need support. Similarly, the Department of Emergency Management has agreed to support the response effort and also deploy out personnel as needed if we are notified that the Red Cross needs support. So we are hoping to establish better communication with the Red Cross and have them notify us with more time so that we can get people out there quickly. And I agree, um, the times vary. It's very challenging for households to be sitting out there and waiting for services. And so we are internally working on a way to shorten that time frame and get somebody out there um, quickly. Thank you. I, I just want to suggest that that notification not be when they can't come within three hours, that that window be significantly, like there, there should be, this is, emergency response when people are at their neediest. I think your comment recognizes that, but I just, I, I don't think a three hour, even if they can do it in three hours, like the city will need to supplement that. I don't think a three hour response time uh, is sufficient. And, and I see my colleagues have questions too, but just, just wanted to finish off on this point. Has there, has there been um, any discussion of, you, you mentioned some city staffing to supplement potentially where the Red Cross can't get out timely. Um, one thing that, that and, and with apologies to our friends uh, at NERT, because I have not discussed this with them, but I'm just struck in this discussion with, that's another pool of, of volunteers available for disasters, and I just wonder if there have been any conversations about whether uh, that might be a, an area where, where NERT might, might be able to assist with more local volunteers uh, who are who are trained and ready and, and uh, have any of those, is that a Yeah, we've, we've started some conversations, but they've not gone very far. Okay. And so um, th it's an excellent suggestion. Um, lots of um, departments have actually identified that as a potential solution. Um, and so we will continue to push those forward with fire. Great, yep. thank you. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair. Um, and I think my question is uh, really for, I noted that, uh, 
the acting deputy director of inspection services from DBI is here, uh, Mr. Matt Green. And uh, I just want to first, uh, we had a fire in the Richmond and, and uh, it's the first time I was actually reminded, I, I've been to different fire scenes and Red Cross was, of course our fire department's on the scene, you know, first. And we also have some, from time to time, have our police officers. For this particular fire was, um, uh, for the first time I actually had um, DBI staff on, on the scene mm -hmm. and walking uh, both tenants but also property owner that I think because the property owner is actually living within the building as well and so was actually there to walk through the property owner but also tenants like about the potential of when and how like what condition would require for them you know in order for them to return so could you walk us a little bit through um just kind of how often that happens because i don't see them all the time but maybe just me missing them but when when are they deployed and it was really efficient they, the person was uh giving everybody business card and making sure that they follow through um, could you just walk me through like when, when that actually happened, like in the work circumstance? Sure. Uh, once again, I'm Matthew Green, uh, representing the Department of Building Inspection. So we have a um, building inspector on call 24 hours a day. Um, ah. If we get a call from the fire department or dispatch, we'll send an inspector out. Uh, during working hours, we'll just send one of our complaint investigation inspectors out. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they can, they're all trained to do a rapid assessment of the property. Um, assuming the building is damaged they'll write a notice of violation um, you know depending generally there's fire damage smoke damage and water damage they'll if they think it's serious they'll ask for a um, engineer to give a more comprehensive report um, so the timelines are really we, we want the engineer to give a report within 72 hours uh, say, saying what the next steps are uh, we're also you know we we're requiring the property owner to um, secure the building um, and tell us how they're going to secure it. Um, there's actually a notification that we give with every notice of violation that um, it's as a result of a Board of Supervisors legislation passed in 2016. So within 72 hours, um, the property owner is supposed to give us a detailed information how they're uh, securing the building. And if the building's red tagged, meaning it's very severe, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any people in the building. Uh, the property owner is supposed to give us detailed information about how they're securing the um, tenant's property, um, how the owners allow or will allow occupants to go in and get their property. So, you know, if it's a severe fire damage, we, we don't want people still living there, but we understand that, you you know, your, your stuff is there. We'll, yeah. If it's safe, we'll allow people to be escorted in to get some stuff and come back out. Um, and there's also a detailed, they need to post detailed contact information for the owner, for the occupant, for the tenants to, to, um, to contact. Um, and then if more severe issues within 30 days, we, we want updates about how the building's being secured. We want to know how they're going to respond to the engineer's report. Um, you know, generally it requires a building permit for, to make the repairs. And you know, we, we keep track of, of that. And if they're not responding in a timely manner, then we might have to you know, go down the code enforcement process, meaning the notice of violation will be referred for further, further action. 
Thank you. And I think this is a question that I have, and I'm not, it's not, I don't think it's on DBI, but a little bit about overlapping with between, you know, the fire department and DBI and also Red Cross, and, and I think partly also the Mayor's Office of Housing. And, and, and I just want to say, though, consistently we are very grateful about um, the Mayor's Office of Housing was really like step up to the plate for us um, to help tenants to find uh, new housing, and also in between time being able to have um, hotel subsidies was really uh, helpful. The only challenge that I find, not the only challenge, many challenges, but but for, for the tenants, um, but it, it is that gap between, oh, do we get to go home and do we not get to go home? And then the moment to realize we don't get to go home, uh, you know, until the really the landlord themselves determine whether they actually can really you know, restore the space for leasing again for, you know, whether to really do that. So what do we, how do we, uh, within 30 days you're mentioning about whether it's safe to return and you're going to make that determination whether they actually fix up the building. So what, what do, what happened when the te like landlords say, I just, I'm just not in a space to be able to repair the home for people to return? Like what do we do from there and on out? Well, so it is an unsafe building, and yeah. we've written a notice of violation to the property. Of course. Um, you know, we're sympathetic with the property owners. I mean, they didn't want this fire at all either, right? But we do have an active notice of violation that we wrote the day of the, uh, the fire. Um, it does have some requirements and timelines when they have to get started, and, mm -hmm. and if they don't, we, we move to the next stage of our code enforcement process. Um, this could end up with the order of abatement being placed against the property. And if they're really, really ignoring our timelines and stuff, we might uh, go to emergency order, which, which we did with the Octavia fire a couple of weeks ago. And we, we just issued one yesterday for the 8th Avenue fire. Um, that's a little more, um, more strict timelines. And we're, we're filing a lien against the property immediately and notifying all the uh, interested parties interested parties, meaning, you know, banks, insurance companies, we're all notifying about the process. That's so good to know. I think this is a last note. Again, I don't know if it's really for anyone present here, but I just want to say out loud in case you do have any suggestions. Uh, what has been challenging for us when we have apartment fire for our tenants in multiple units is that uh, what we also have found uh, is looting. Um, lately, um, it, when a fire occurred, it was just the most terrible thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, you 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 finally got out, and, and you your family and your uh, animals are safe, and then you know just to like return a few days later because you're told that it's safe now to go back, and then you realize that your items were um, you're robbed, and you know they were stolen. So just kind of also curious about when we talk about securing the scene. Um, besides just the fact that it, whether it's safe to return, are there any other, um, now that we find out this is, this is a phenomena, are there any other things that we could do to um, help prevent that from happening? Well, well so we, we, we do write our notice of violation. We do require them to secure the building. They're supposed to inform us how they're securing the building. It's generally um, always an issue how to secure an unoccupied building. Mm -hmm. It means nobody, you know, generally watching. Um, the 8th Avenue fire just recently does have a security guard on site securing it, but I guess one would re one option would be requiring on-site security to yeah. verify it. Um, 
we, we have this issue with vacant buildings all over the city. Yeah. You know, they're boarded up and people still do break into them. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. And just on that last point, I just want to echo that that's been our experience at virtually every fire. There uh, are break-ins, and you know these fires are not a secret to everyone, right? It goes out. You got the folks coming, not just the city personnel, like fire department, coming to put out the fire. You got all the folks who uh, are trying to sell their services the, to uh, you know the different companies who are trying to sell their services to the landlord. And you also got a lot of other people out there who know what's going on and know that it's an abandoned building. So I'm, I am concerned that the, I don't think that the system of just the notice of violation that's advising them to secure it is not preventing well, what has become, unfortunately, unless uh, you have a property owner that is proactive and decides they're really going to secure the premises and they're potentially hiring a security guard in those initial days. It's almost like we, we tell folks to expect that to, if they can get back in, and the fire department's usually wonderful about when it's safe, helping people get back in to retrieve, you know, the cell phone, the computer, you know, the, the, and the box of pictures, you know, whatever people don't want ripped off. Um, it's a major gap that I think we, and, and our office has been looking at like what are potential legislative things we could do um, but it's not working in those first couple days, especially. Yeah. Uh, well, I would clarify, we're not advising them to secure the building. We're ordering them, ordering them to secure the building. But that order's within 72 hours, Correct. right? And that's what I'm saying is that, that in almost every one of these cases, the first night or two, someone is in that building once they know it is an empty building and once they know that it's, you know, sure. it, yeah. And in... in you know, in fairness to the property owners, they're scrambling there to get somebody to come in, get some plywood, secure the building, right. and everything. It just takes time. But you, but you're you're correct. That that is a vulnerable building when when, it, when it's not secure. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you, Chair Preston. Uh, I think my questions are directed to the fire marshal. In terms of your presentation, I was very alarmed about the outside fire calls. Um, in terms of there being an increase, two and a half times more. Um, and I'm thinking encampment fires. I'm mean, looking at this chart in 2020, we had 3,600 calls and now we have 6,000 so far this year, um, or 4,000 so far this year, estimated to be 6,000, sorry. And I'm very concerned about that. And, and notably, after the fire that engulfed the building under construction in the Lower Haight last month in uh, Supervisor Preston's district, you know, a lot of neighbors did speculate that um, encampments nearby may have been to blame. I don't know where we are in terms of determining the cause. But also in District 2, there have been several small fires and small explosions on the alleys between Van Ness and Franklin. Um, most have occurred on Larch Alley. And also a few months ago, a tent was engulfed in flames across from the JCC on, at California and Presidio. Thankfully, no one was hurt. We followed up and asked what may have caused that, and we were told it was either heating, cooking, or drug use. So, and then I'm looking at HSA's presentation in terms of the recommendation on renter's insurance, and having, I'm an attorney, and I used to do um, insurance defense, um, knowing where we are in the California insurance market right now, um, we have a crisis on our hands, you know, we have... Um, we have um, California insurance companies reducing coverage, leaving the state. Um, with these type of statistics, it really concerns me that renters insurance could go up even more for um, renters 
um, or not be there if we don't get a handle on um, this ongoing issue, which I think is problematic, it certainly is in my district, of fires in these encampments. And just trying to get a handle on what are we doing to prevent that? Um, are you working with the Department of Emergency Management or what more could we be doing? Thank you for the question. Um, I'm concerned about it too. I was really surprised that it had increased that much. Um, so the fire code is, is it's all about compliance. And this is, I've explained, working with the mayor's office on, on this same issue right now about what are we going to do? We know that there's no clearing of encampments right now. Um, the public is very aware of fires these days of, and are less hesitant to call. And I think that also brings up uh, the, the call volume. I will say that not all of them are definitely fires. I did do some research. We call These are calls for outside fires. Some of them are extinguished before we get there. Um, some of the population, um, homeless population, know to extinguish the fires before we get there. Um, so we're very reactive to it. Um, we do not pre-inspect and we don't have the right to go into people's tents to take things from them. We understand the preferred method of cooking and heating happens to be a metal container with some cotton and some alcohol in it, which allows you to warm, cook, and do drugs um, with that. Um, if a complaint is lodged with the Bureau of Fire Prevention, we go out there. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a moving target trying to find um, that particular small fire. So the best things we get, we do ask people, call 911, we will send an engine company out there if there's an active fire. Um, we will extinguish it or ask them to extinguish it. Obviously, cooking on the sidewalk is not safe um, up against buildings. And we've, we've seen fires, uh, like I said, that get out of control. Uh, people did made a mistake. They spilt it uh, within their tent on their mattress, and it does get the adjacent structure. Um, there's only one way to abate this would be to get the people off the streets uh, where they actually have to uh, have these fires. Okay, in terms of the injunction, because a lot of times that's mentioned and people are under the impression that the injunction does not allow us to, um, you know, address the encampments at all, but there are provisions that are allowed in terms of, you know, you can't have, you know, filth and debris, and there are a lot of things that we can address um, that the injunction does not cover. And my reading of it and is anything that would be a hazard, you know, in terms of creating a fire, especially based on precedent, that that is something that um, I think we should be able to look into. Obviously, you can't just go into the tents and, and you know, take people's things away from them, but at the same time, if there's some type of hazard that's created, I would hope that we could do whatever we can to prevent fires from continuing to happen, especially on Larch Alley, which is one of my most problematic areas. Um, so, Hopefully, I can get some more clarity around what exactly the fire, fire department can do. I don't even know if you can do something proactively, but I feel like with the increase in calls and the anecdotal evidence, at least for my district, it's a huge problem. Um, the other question I had, um, whether or not we are working with outreach teams to assess what they have in the encampments to determine whether or not there is flammable material and whether or not the you know encampments do pose a risk okay um, 
So I would just say there is two sides to the fire department. There is obviously suppression, the emergency response to take care of an immediate issue, and then there's the prevention and investigation side, which I'm in charge of. Uh, the fire code is really written about compliance, right? You see a problem, and we go up to it. it a fire, once it's extinguished, it's, they've met compliance, and that's the sad part because, you know, you have some hibachi, you have a outside little bonfire for warming. Once it's out, there's nothing to violate somebody on anymore. Um, that's what the main goal is to, is to extinguish that. So that's, that's part of the, the problem. Um, is there, there's nothing proactive currently to work with HSOC or anybody else and, and go to these. Um, but I will mention that just recently a discussion has been started and I think we have another meeting in a couple of weeks to figure out how I can work with. So I have a community outreach and education team Typically, this came from, again, the 2016 legislation where we go out and do fire safety uh, workshops in the home. And the idea was to go to these um, buildings and apartment buildings and, and uh, educate the residents of how to be fire safe, whether uh, just bad behaviors or leaving candles or extension cords, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're considering trying to expand it, how we could work with HSOC to go out there. Obviously, it wouldn't be safe to send an inspector and go to all these homeless encampments and start educating people uh, that they shouldn't light a fire um, to cook or warm themselves. Um, so we have just started that. Um, there's been discussions about how we can cite um, these uh, people lighting these fires so we have some documentation. Um, like Again, it's very difficult. It will take a team. I would not expect to send an inspector out without a police officer or Sam or somebody else from HSOC to to assist in that and educating them. Um, we have previously and through our PIO, I believe John Baxter's gone out with HSOX and uh, they have you know, information cards about fire safety. I don't know how well that's actually getting through to the people. I think they have bigger problems um, living on the street than reading a card and saying you should not do this or that. We're there, we wanna be part of the solution. We're just not sure what that solution is going to be. Okay, thank you for that. And I, my office will follow up with you. We are meeting with some homeowners on Larch Alley soon. Um, and at that time, you know, if there are tent encampments there, which I suspect there will be, because um, we've tried so hard to move them, but obviously for all the reasons we all know, it's been hard. But I, I do want to follow up and make sure that we are being proactive about, you know, making sure fires aren't starting for whatever reason, cooking, heating, drug use, whatever it is. Um, it's not fair to the, you know, the homes and, um, and the people inside the encampments as well. I mean, it poses a danger to everybody. So we'll follow up with you on this piece of it. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you, Vice Chair. Stephanie um, and Supervisor Chan, I see you're on the roster. I don't know if that was from your previous questions. Okay. Um, I have um, just a couple other questions before we move to, uh, to public comment. Um, for, well, this is a comment. I, I don't know if uh, we, we were talking with uh, Mr. Green about the, um, the kind of timeline for returning. I'm not sure this is a question for you if anyone wants to speak to it. I, uh, we can. I mean, my understanding is there's not a clear requirement after the fire occurs, and maybe I'm wrong, I, it, you issue a notice and you say it's red tagged or it's uninhabitable, right? But does, do you provide an actual timeline 
for when the work needs to be completed? Does DBAI provide that? Uh, yes, so notice of violations do have timelines. Um, how do you set the post-fire one? In the situation where the entire building is rendered uninhabitable, um, how do you set that and how long is that? So, so, so severe fire like that, well, first we'd ask for an engineer's report within 72 hours, uh, you know, assessing what exactly needs to be done to bring it up to habitability. Um, generally, we, we ask for the work to be done within 90 days. That's, as long as they're moving forward, that's kind of an unrealistic uh, goal, right? So as long as they're uh, adding, you know, showing us progress and they're moving forward, getting the proper permits and getting the work started, we'll, we'll give them more time. So it, it, it'd, be easy, it'd be nice for us to just say be finished in 90 days, but it's just reality doesn't make that possible. Right, and I just want to underscore the reality for, for rent control tenants is, you know, once the building is uninhabitable um, because of a fire, I mean, people know, at least in my district, that often that means many years, right, of before that's going to be ready. And there's a real range. You've got some very conscientious landlords who are on it and trying to get the work done. They're battling with their insurance companies and trying mm -hmm. to figure it out and, and, and get it all in place. And then you have others who are, who frankly go to certain eviction lawyers in town and are advised as a great opportunity to try to buy out and get rid of your long-term tenants. And, and so we see situations where five years goes by and nothing's done at the building. Um, Maybe because the owner doesn't have money, maybe because they've decided that uh, when they do rebuild, they want to rebuild for, uh, for, for new tenants, right? So it's really important that folks get uh, advice on their rights from uh, tenant rights groups in this situation. And I also want to note one thing that I think is changing in the law, and I hope uh, is going to have an impact on this, is what we have never had is any consequence except for the rare cases of a referral you know, when someone's really dragging their feet, DBI can take, can take action on that. Um, but the lack of a clear timeline under the, under the law more generally has led to multiple years of these buildings being vacant. We have now a residential vacancy tax that will go into effect, thanks to the voters of San Francisco next year, that has a, for the first time, a provision that, uh, rec that, that basically starts imposing a vacancy tax two years after that fire. So there will, on a per unit basis, with escalating uh, penalties basically annually on that, up to about $20,000 a unit if they really drag their feet in the situation like the five-year situation. Um, so I think that will become another tool in the, in the arsenal of trying to get the, the owners who aren't moving forward to do the repairs as quickly as possible. And, and uh, we do have the option, you know, if, if we, when we start the code enforcement process, if they're really dragging their feet and they're really being egregious, we can refer it to the city attorney for litigation. Right. Thank you. Um, and then uh, back to HSA for uh, for a second. Can, can you just elaborate, like how many, you talked about the role being the point of contact, the, the, on, the need for more ongoing case management, but can you give us a sense of like how many people and how many FTE in the city and county of San Francisco are assigned to this role of being the main contact for at HSA for all these tenants? At HSA, we have one staff member. He's our disaster response coordinator. Um, and we have uh, three rotating duty officers um, that switch off for a week at a time. And they're the folks that are available 24 hours. Um, and then my own time, um, which is probably 50% of my time. 
Got it. And the three rotating duty officers are for the immediate response, or they're also doing the ongoing case management? Not case management, just immediate response. So they are the folks that get the call from Department of Emergency Management or the Red Cross when there is an active incident that's being resolved. Got it. Well, I know we all have our, our budget limitations and so forth, but the idea that we have one person and only one person whose job it is, right, at, at the lead department on this, to serve as the point of contact on, for ongoing support and case management and placing people in housing and so forth. One person for the entire city and county of San Francisco is the reason that I believe my staff <laughs> ends up playing that role uh, as well as probably many of my colleagues at the board because people don't know where else to go. And if they're not hearing back from HSA, I mean, that often happens. It's not because that one person is isn't trying, it's because it's one person. And, and I just, like, as a city, I appreciate the efforts to try to coordinate better with Red Cross, maybe look at NERT and other things, but, you know, I, I will just suggest, and I look forward to working with, you know, everyone involved on trying to make this a reality. I think we should have a point person who is city staff, who comes out to the scene of a fire, who is there to assist. Now, they can be assisted by Red Cross, but they need to be there. Like immediately be there, um, just like the fire department's there to put out the fire, right? There needs to be someone there to support residents Im yeah. immediately, and on an ongoing basis, we have to look at what is the appropriate staffing level, either to ramp up HSA's ability to do this, or to work with partner nonprofits, you know, to to provide that support. But it's just the idea that there's one person to do all this is is why we see. I believe, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but to me it's pretty obvious that that's why we have the gaps and why we have people who are pulling their hair out because they can't get the response that they need in this time of need. Yeah, I, I believe our response is, um, is pretty timely. I think the issue is that we also have limited resources, right? We, we provide hoteling directly and then we provide the housing subsidy. We don't provide anything else. We don't have a housing portfolio or housing to actually refer people over. Um, you know, we don't have the ability to provide them with additional funds or stipends or grants um, to get back on their feet. Um, and so, uh, while I do feel like we do need additional staffing resources, um, I also feel like there there are limited. Uh, resources that we can provide households. Um, and that's why we rely on the Red Cross. They have the ability to provide, you know, a credit card with funds on it. We don't have the ability to provide that. Um, and so that's, that is one of the reasons why we work so closely with them to provide that immediate assistance. But I agree, more resources are needed, both staff and, and financial. And, and just to be clear, because one of the things I've learned through this process is the, the Red Cross does what the Red Cross does. Amazing organization. It's incredible what they are able to do in cities all across the country and their arrangement with San Francisco has been of hugely beneficial to residents of San Francisco. That said, I was shocked to learn there's not even an MOU, a document, the expectations of what is going to be provided. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is we're kind of at the mercy of, you know, if they want to restaff, like you're saying, and do a regional approach instead of a city approach, and that delays their response, like, we, we don't have any, unlike other situations where we contract with someone to provide a critical service, there's not even a contract with no. the Red Cross. 
you know, they do this out of their mission. This is yep. what their mission is. And, and they often share that they go above and beyond in San Francisco because we work so closely with them um, and because they do understand that our expectation is um, that they help San Franciscans um, as soon as possible. I know in other instances, it takes them much longer to go out to the scene and they don't go immediately to the scene. So I feel like what we're receiving from the Red Cross is, is um, a step up um, from what other jurisdictions may see, may receive. And I, and I will just repeat that when they're out there, they're, they have been incredible yeah. in terms of their level of training and service that they provide once they're on site. Um, last thing before we go to public comment, unless my colleagues have other questions that I wanted to, um, to plant a seed on and, and, and ask uh, you all to, to about. One of the reasons we had this hearing is to have the public to have a more transparent process where the public hears about these various programs, the ability to stay in a hotel, the ability to potentially qualify for longer term uh, housing subsidy, um, some of the things DBI is doing, efforts to secure the premises, and so forth. What, one of the things that is lacking every time I go on site is we don't have a piece of paper or a website or anything to hand to people who have just been displaced, burnt out of their homes that has all this information. Just like a simple multilingual, here's what happens here, right? Like I end up giving a, you know, one hour tutorial or a 10 minute tutorial or however, you know, of the breakdown of what are your rights, what organizations, what's the role of the Red Cross, what's the role of HSA, what might you qualify, what are the criteria to qualify for that, what if I do have renter's insurance, what do I do, what if I don't, right? Like there's, there's stuff that we all know, that we're, some of which we're talking about today. None of that is communicated except like in this anecdotal way, I think, to folks. HSA will provide some information once someone reaches out, right, and is connected, referred to you of here's the program for rental subsidies. But what I wanna request, and plant the seed here, but also, unless there's some reason we can't do this, would really like to, on a reasonable timeline, develop, and our office is happy to help and assist with this, but there just has to be a fact sheet and it has to be multilingual with the numbers to contact, the various rights, the places people can go for tenant rights assistance, obligations of the landlord, and where the role of DBI and so forth. Is that something that, that exists and I just don't know about? Uh, if so, let's get it out to everyone. And who should be distributed? You know, should it be the fire department has that? Should it be the Red Cross? How do we get that out to folks? Uh, so any comment on that would be great. Yeah, so the fire department does actually hold a fact sheet. Um, we actually were working with um, Jonathan Baxter on this not so long ago, um, that they distribute to households on scene, um, sharing information about resources. The Red Cross also has a fact sheet that shares um, the same information. So there are uh, versions of this. I think what we are looking for here is one version that's universal that is shared by all of the response entities that can be shared um, with the households. Um, and I think the idea of making it available online is also a, a reasonable uh, recommendation. Yeah. Thank you. Be, if you could share those with us, if fire department has something that is distributed. Again, I've been on scene countless times, unfortunately, and have not seen anyone getting that. Sure. So that I think there may be some disconnect. And yeah, please, please. 
No, it was actually very interesting that you brought that up because I've noticed the, the same thing when yeah. this was brought up and I'm learning a lot from um, Doris's presentation. I'm working with the community and outreach and education team actually and working with uh, my supervisors, uh, Chief Luttrup and uh, Janine Nicholson regarding a, a card that actually our battalion chiefs, our incident commanders will actually be handing out. Obviously they have incident support specialists, the right hand person keeping an eye on it, that they're gonna actually gonna keep in there what we call our buggy that at these fires that they can actually hand out to the to residents. So we're actually working on it. And now that I have some other additional contacts and you've mentioned John Baxter, I didn't realize he actually had that sheet, can put this together and, and just trying to get a simple, you know, five by seven glossy card, two-sided that, hey, you need to contact, you've got, these are your rights for what your landlord is supposed to do. This is who you can call. This is how you can get some housing and just kind of summarize that with some links and some phone numbers. Uh, I'm expecting within the next 30 to 60 days to actually have those printed out and given to our battalion chief. So very timely uh, question. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, and if there are any dra existing ones or drafts of fact sheets or contact info that you could share with us, that'd be great. And we're happy to partner uh, with you and, and, and then uh, hopefully with assistance from OCR or your departments in terms of translation and so forth. But it's, I, I think this is an area where there's considerably more cons um, city support available for people than they're aware of, right? And, and it's n I don't know that we re need to reinvent the wheel on what the supports are. Uh, between the Good Samaritan program where landlords are making their units available to the subsidy program that HSA operates and that, that, that many people are eligible for, um, I think there, the, there's, um, it's a communications issue and a having that point, that, that, uh, point of con that one point of contact and, and making sure we have uh, sufficient staffing to, uh, to provide that support. But thank you for clarifying the, the work you're already doing on that. Okay, uh, Supervisor Stephanie. Yes, I just wanted to mention, you know, it's not just city support, and you did mention the Good Samaritan program, which I right. thank you for, um, run by the San Francisco Apartment Association that does actually work with HSA to help place individuals and provide subsidies. I believe they work with Ben at HSA. I'm not sure um, if you work with them at all, but again, I think that's information that we should be imparting. We should let people know that um, there's help from landlords, like you said, and the Apartment Association helps to organize that through not just helping to place people, but also subsidies, so. Absolutely, thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. And just uh, will it bears, you know, repeating the one message to renters. I just want to concur. If you're a renter, really look at renters insurance as probably one thing that will prevent a lot of the headaches. Uh, and if you're a landlord watching this, in addition to the fire prevention work, um, you know, please consider doing what some landlords do already in providing through the Good Samaritan program, which is actually a provision of our rent ordinance, uh, just so folks know what that is, that says that a landlord who, who offers a unit um, as, a good as part of a Good Samaritan program to displaced residents, understanding that that is temporary, um, that they uh, are not bound by the, um, the same rules around uh, rent control that we usually apply. So we have some landlords who are willing to let folks rent at a significantly discounted rent because of their hardship. Um, normally under the local rent control laws, that would become the base rent forever with annual increases. Under the Good Samaritan program, it doesn't. It's specifically designed so landlords who are interested and willing in helping out can do so on that short, you know, one year, two year, whatever that timeline is. Uh, and that isn't a new permanent base rent 
uh, for long-term tenancy. Yeah, I just want to, so Benjamin Ames is actually our disaster response coordinator and he works um, in my office um, and he is the one that is the one managing all of um, the client assistance work and um, the work that you refer to is the emergency rental assistance program and so that's what we're speaking about today. I think one of the challenges has been um, we have landlords that sometimes don't want to come into the program um, because they have to become approved city vendors and they have to go through that entire process. Um, and then with Good Samaritan, we're also finding that if there isn't a guarantee of when folks will be exiting or returning back to their um, original units, we're having trouble um, with um, property owners and landlords um, coming on board and doing Good Samaritan. So I just wanted to identify those challenge points. Thank you. And with that, thank you to all the pre presenters. And let's open this item up for public comment, Madam Clerk. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment on item number one? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three now to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Speakers will have two minutes to make their comments. For those in chamber, the lectern has a visual timer that will change from green to yellow with a warning bell sign and lastly to red with a final bell to indicate that your time has elapsed. For call-in participants, I will alert you when your time has elapsed. Welcome speaker, you may proceed. Good morning, supervisors. Um, thank you, Supervisor Preston, for this hearing. I think it's very important and I hope that there will be a follow-up uh, at least within a year to revisit progress. I wanted to uh, say that my greatest concern about uh, this hearing is the care for our residents and the idea that they're sitting there often in their night clothes on the curb. Um, you know, I, I haven't been out at the fires recently like you have, the, the one I remember from many years ago they were in their nightgown, and there was no blanket, there was no clothes that were offered to them. They were just, you know, freezing in, in San Francisco winter. Um, so I, I would like to see some more things like that. I'd like to also see more data on the types of fires. It was a very gross level, which is very important, but maybe some fine-tuning on the causes of the fires so that we have a better idea about solutions. Um, as you said, that there may be some um, uh, sprinkler th systems or something, or sounder systems now that are less expensive. Um, on the tenant insurance, maybe if there's a way to simplify it, because a lot of people don't want to spend the 250 or 300 a year, um, one idea might be that if the, the property owner let them pay uh, you know, on, on that, uh, I also want to say that my understanding of the Good Samaritan program is that they uh, can rent for one year at their old rent, regardless of whether that matches what the, the owner would charge, and perhaps a second year. Now, if I'm wrong on that, I'd like to be corrected, but um, quite often the, the uh, period of displacement is more than a year or two. Thank you. Hi, I was in the uh, McAllister Divisadero fire. Um, I'm grateful to everybody here. I was saved from the building because I couldn't get out on my own. I'm sorry, I'm a little, a little nervous. I'm prob and this is a hot topic, no pun intended. <laughs> um, 
The sprinklers sound really great to me because McAllister and Divisdale only has one fire escape and nobody in the building was able to use it. So we all had to get out and crawling on the floor through the smoke. I went through the kitchen window. Um, so I, it's terrifying to know that there are people in these buildings that can't, you just physically can't get out. Um, I'm grateful to Dean for your right for showing up the next day when you're in complete shock like that. The piece of paper actually would be really cool because every, you get out and what's on your body and you may not even have a phone. You don't have the brain to think. The, the piece of paper, I think is, it sounds so basic and old, but I think it would be really effective. Um, I mean, I was at, a, I was at the public event that Dean held and I was telling people about how you had to give a 30-day notice to your landlord that you intend to return and I couldn't believe that people didn't know that and I think the resources are there but when you're in shock from a fire like that to move yourself to research is really difficult. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Are there any other speakers here in the chamber? Seeing no other speakers, we currently have 10 callers with five in the speaking queue. If you'd like to speak to this item, please dial star three nine so that you're added to the queue. May we please have the first speaker. Good morning, this is Teresa Flandrick, North Beach Tenants Committee. I am so appreciative of this hearing. Um, I am also glad to hear about a, um, a timeline regarding repairs actually being done. Um, the displacement that has gone on in one building in particular here in North Beach um, is, you know, 10 years ago was the initial fire. Um, also to be able to track tenants so that they do know that they have a right to return. I, I hope that that is also included in uh, legislation. Um, I think also of fire prevention. I do know of a number of older Italian and Chinese landlords here in North Beach that are, you know, maybe, um, you know, house, house rich, but um, cash poor. And in terms of um, fire prevention, sprinklers, et cetera, that if low interest loans could be offered to, um, to some of those um, older landlords that maybe don't have the money to, to do the preventive um, work right now. Um, also rental insurance, just to be clear, many have had rental insurance and, and it proved to be inadequate. Um, and so it varies also in price, uh, just as a reality check on that. Um, while a good idea, it, it is, um, there are issues. Um, also in terms of outreach, I think it would be great if like the visual that was shown by HSA um, was, you know, present at all health and safety fairs, uh, sent out to counseling organizations. Um, an example is when a woman here in North Beach had a fire um, in her building in February, it was really difficult to find resources. Trying to get information on, on the Good Samaritan um, um, housing uh, also led to nothing. So getting this information out in, in a one-pager, it would be amazing um, and multilingual. Um, and again, Teresa Flanders, apologies for the interruption. Your time has elapsed. Thank you for your comments today. May you please have the next speaker? 
Uh, hi, everyone. This is Charlie Goss with the San Francisco Apartment Association. Uh, thank you for having this hearing today. Just had a couple of thoughts that we wanted to share with you. We worked pretty extensively on this issue in 2016 uh, when there were a few high-profile fires uh, in the Mission District, tragically. Um, and we worked pretty extensively with the Board of Supervisors, with then-Supervisor Compost. And what the city decided to do, what the board decided to do back then, was adopt two major pieces of fire safety legislation. One is a tenant disclosure about fire safety features in the building. Uh, so now, uh, since then, every tenant, when they sign a lease in San Francisco, gets or should get a disclosure about fire safety features in their building. Uh, this also includes a, a posting in building common areas about fire safety information and a list of tenants' rights groups in the city. And we think that's helpful in providing communication to tenants. Um, the next is the fire alarm sleeping area requirements, uh, which, as mentioned, the deadline to complete those requirements was extended due to COVID to just two months ago. Um, so over the past seven years, we've really put a lot of effort into working with our community of rental housing providers to upgrade their buildings um, and improve the fire alarm features. Um, it, it was a very significant undertaking. It was a major upgrade to the fire alarm systems. Um, and most owners are just now complying uh, as of two months ago. And so I say that to say that I think that today we're in a better shape with regards to, to fires in residential buildings and fire safety than we were in 2016, which is something we're thankful for. Um, just a couple extra thoughts that we had. What we have noticed and what we have concerns over is fires related to lithium ion, ion batteries that are frequently found in electric bikes and electric scooters. Uh, many people buy refurbished batteries that are damaged, and when these are charged, they have a propensity to start fires. And it's a major concern of ours there's a bill at the state, SB 712, that we, I believe is pending right now. We're not to regulate uh, charging in multifamily buildings. Uh, we hope that it passes. We're not sure it will. Uh, if it doesn't, we would love for the Board of Supervisors to take action on that issue because uh, they are a fire safety risk. Um, the, the other one is related to Thank you for your comments today, Charlie Goss. Your time has elapsed. Sorry for the interruption. As a reminder, all speakers will be granted two minutes today. May we please have the next caller? Hi, good morning. Uh, Government Audit and Oversight Committee, uh, Joe Kunzler here. Um, I'm gonna be watching my own time as I'm not getting chimes uh, through this audio feed. So don't worry about that, Madam Clerk. Um, I noticed some discussion, thank you, Supervisor Stephanie, about the homeless encampments and the need to remove them from sidewalks and stuff because they are a residential building. I also think that, frankly, we need to have safe lots and safe places for people uh, until they could obtain housing uh, away from gawkers and, and such because it is of concern. I get some pullback as a yearbook photographer when I photograph the homeless, so I'm just sliding a note under the table because I like you guys, not just you know who. Um, and I, I really think that in order to make San Francisco safe for me to bring my mother and uh, see her former stopping grounds and meet the strongest supervisor on humanity. You guys need to really, um, you know, get control of your urban situation. And that's why I'm so grateful for the city attorney and some of the supervisors in going after uh, those homeless encampments on the street. That's not safe for anybody. It's certainly not safe for the homeless. Um, finally, I've had our personal privilege. If Supervisor Preston could have a word with Jordan Davis about his conduct towards Supervisor Stephanie, that would be appreciated. Thank you for your time. I want to make sure you have time for everybody else. 
Thank you, Republic. Thank you for your comments today, Joe Kunzler. May we please have the next caller? Good morning, supervisors. My name is Dan Torres. I'm a business agent with Sprinkler Fitters Local 483. I represent men and women that install, test, and maintain life safety fire sprinkler systems. I've been in the fire protection industry for over 20 years. Technology in the fire sprinkler industry has come a long way. There are ways to retrofit multi-unit buildings with little to no displacement and keep costs down to property owners. Loss of life and property are preventable. Local 43 supports the idea of retrofitting multi-unit buildings with life safety fire, fire sprinkler systems. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments today, Dan Torres. May we please have the next caller? Hello, I'm calling on behalf of TGIJP. My name is Rose. Uh, we are an organization that works with um, predominantly the transgender community. And this early spring, we dealt with a fire at the Balboa Hotel where a lot of our clients were being held, where they were, we were holding um, housing subsidies for our clients. And during this process, uh, the Balboa Hotel caught fire and all of our clients, um, um, a big percentage of them were all displaced. We were put in a situation where the city's response was um, such, uh, such as it was, it was seriously under par in which our organization had to really pull out of our own pockets from every direction in order to make sure that our clients had what they needed in this time of transition, in this time of crisis. Um, we already provide housing uh, subsidies for the majority of our clients, but in this interim, we were barely able to receive anything. And there's a few folks on this call who um, who will also be commenting on this from other perspectives. I'm the wellness coach within our organization. And so, you know, just wanted to speak about some of the like long-term, you know, health and mental wellness effects of what not only just, we know that the crisis of a fire and losing everything can do that, but when we're looking at the being, being in a situation where what should be there in regards to support during this transition isn't, and how that perpetuates the ongoing Excuse me, I apologize for the interruption, community. Rose. Thank you so much for your comments today. Your time has elapsed. We currently have seven callers on the line with one in the queue. If you would like to speak to this item, now is a good time to dial star three. Thank you. May you please have the next caller. Hi, my name is Keisha and my colleagues just talk on behalf of TGIP. So we were experiencing um, one of the housing case manager. It was so difficult for us because we didn't have any help support. Like we literally have to use like our budget to um, house like house our client that who was displaced from the fire. So from hotel, from moving their stuff, and some of the stuff were like 
burnt out and we reached out to the landlord and they weren't like cooperating with us so like it makes it harder for us to like help her displace um clients so um yeah and a lot of the organizations that we reached out like they weren't like really helping and um red cross just gave us like 350 for our client which is like and our like the sro basically like we're not giving us like partial the rent that we paid for so like it was like the difficult like the process of just placing our client to a new place thank you Thank you for your comments today, Keisha. We have one last caller in the queue. Maybe please have the speaker. Hi, my name is Eric Schnabel, also from TGI Justice Project. Just wanted to follow up on what other people had said. Um, I would say, uh, you know, in reading a response from our executive director who was on the scene at this fire at the Balboa Hotel at 121 Hyde Street uh, back in February, uh, really, the only assistance that they received on site was from the fire department captains. Um, the assistance from the Red Cross coordination uh, was really inadequate. Um, you know, there was really no support, no follow-up, no kind of on support, uh, on kind of site support, whether it be blankets or being able to make sure that people were out of the cold and, and safe and, and had warm clothing or kind of uh, and any place to, to get warm to also kind of follow up of like, what do we do now? Uh, how do we go from here? Uh, I would say that uh, really the only resistance we received was actually from Supervisor Preston's office, uh, as well as the Office of Trans Initiative. I think one of the bigger issues is uh, when this kind of situation happens at an SRO, uh, where you have a situation where the SR owners are not uh, really supportive, not providing any support uh, in the situation where we actually were uh, providing this uh, kind of support to the fire systems. We actually supported staff from the SRO who were also displaced, uh, not the building owner, uh, not the, the SRO uh, staff. Uh, and so I think there's really a kind of a lack of uh response even on the day of. And then I think the, the follow-up is also really lacking. Um, you know, there's no kind of connection to folks who are in subsidies if they're displaced. Uh, it took us about probably two and a half months till we were able to kind of get people back into places uh, where their subsidies can kick in. And we had to provide uh, both hotel support, uh, all the assistance to the people. I apologize for the interruption today, Eric. Thank you for your comments. Are there any other speakers that would like to speak to this item? If you are on the line, please dial star three now. And there are no other speakers in the queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. I wanna thank everyone who called in for public comment, especially uh, those who have been uh, displaced due to fire and made uh, time to be here today, thank you very much. Um, I, I appreciate the, the hard work of uh, 
the departments who have spoken and the staff in, in um, working with our office to get ready for this hearing. Um, I, you know, I think it's clear that the current uh, protocol isn't uh, sufficient. It's operating inconsistently. Um, and and we need to make some improvements that we've, we've discussed. I, I do think there's a lot of helpful information um, shared today. Um, I really want to thank uh, Fire Marshal Coughlin, uh, Director Barone, and uh, Deputy Director Green for their presentations and, and work uh, collaboratively on this. Uh, I want to repeat, because it can't be said enough, uh, encouraging uh, any tenants in San Francisco to consider uh, getting uh, renter's insurance as a way to have some protections in the event of a fire. Uh, I'm not usually in the role of trying to sell people insurance and I could care less who you get it from and uh, all that. I just would encourage folks to at least look at it because we always talk to folks on the eve of the fire, you know, right after the fire. And the first question everyone gets asked, do you have renter's insurance? And people at that moment are beating themselves up for not looking into it before. So please look into it. Um, also want to remind landlords of their obligation to restore tenants to possession, to return uh, folks to these units. And as I mentioned before, that the vacancy tax starting uh, 2024, vacancy tax will be another additional incentive to do this work in a timely way. Um, also want to, as we've said, encourage landlords to consider participating in the Good Samaritan program or at least learning more about that uh, because it's really uh, been a very positive program in the city. Um, I think, you know, I think there's more that we can be doing, as I've mentioned. I think there are a few areas and just, you know, the brief recap from my perspective is I think we should be um, taking a fresh look at sprinklers. Um, and I appreciate uh, Supervisor Chan is starting that conversation around some of the newer construction ADUs and, and other buildings. I also think we need to uh, revisit a bit how we approach the low rise and mid rise uh, buildings um, and, and what kind of retrofitting requirements might be viable and feasible, uh, particularly as uh, Dan Torres called in and talked about some of the uh, ways to do that these days that are not so cost prohibitive and that do not involve uh, extensive displacement. Uh, I think we can bring stakeholders together and, and do that. It, it's going to come with a price tag. And one thing I think we might want to consider and just to plant the seed as a lot of conversations about the bond are happening is whether this might be a good use of uh, some of the bond revenue as we go to voters uh, on housing bonds uh, next year, uh, whether uh, some portion could be uh, there to assist property owners in, in that kind of upgrade. Um, I think, I, I mean, there's just no question that it will save lives. And I will say as District 5 supervisor before and after redistricting, one of the things I'm struck by is I get a lot more calls around fires now that I represent the Tenderloin. But I can tell you this, I've also been to fires in the Tenderloin that start in one room. The entire building's evacuated and standing outside and every one of those people, except maybe the person in the room where the fire was, is back in their bed that night sleeping there because those SROs are required to have sprinklers. And the contrast between that and when you got 25 people outside the rent control building none of whom are going to be able to, to return for years because that fire in that building that started, same thing, in one unit because of the lack of sprinklers quickly spread and, and even with incredible response times from the fire department who are there almost instantly, these old, these old wood buildings, I mean, they go up fast. 
uh, and we need sprinklers in those buildings, in, in my opinion. So I look forward to working with everyone on that. Uh, the second area where I think we, we can be doing more and we've talked about is, is the, that, that initial contact. I think, we need, I think we need city staff there. It's too important to leave uh, to, as amazing as the Red Cross is, we, we don't have a contract with them. We are subject to their availability of volunteers and their policies. We, of course, will continue to work closely with the Red Cross and appreciate their incredible support locally uh, that they fund, right? And it's an incredible thing that they do with volunteers and, and resources. Um, but I don't think it is a substitute for us having someone immediately on site who is, on city, who is city staff and who is there for the purposes of doing that initial contact and intake uh, and, and, and support for displaced residents. Um, uh, that includes getting their contact information. Uh, we didn't talk uh, about this, Mr. Rome, but I, I just have to observe that anyone who provides any kind of services knows the more times you make people go through intake, the more people you lose in the process. So the idea that people go through the Red Cross and their intake process, and then the Red Cross asks them if they can share with HSA, and then people, then there's like another intake with HSA, like that is a recipe for not getting people connected to the services they need. So I think we should be having uh, city staff on site in doing that initial immediate uh, intake along with the Red Cross, rather than navigating the sharing permissions and so forth after a trauma uh, like this for people. Um, also want to encourage the discussions with possibly with NERT, and I appreciate that that uh, may be something that uh, there's been some initial conversations are, would love to, you know, uh, we'll certainly reach out to them and see whether they can assist um, as well, whether that works for, for NERT, for the fire department, um, and for the, the teams uh, that, that are uh, deployed. Um, and then finally, I think we've seen clearly, and thank you for identifying the need for, for ongoing case management, uh, and, and we mentioned Ben Ames. Let me just say thank you, Mr. Ames, for his years of service to the city and uh, at all hours of the night uh, personally doing so much for fire victims. But this is more than one person should be asked to do in our city, um, and we've, we've got to figure out how to, how to adequately staff ongoing case management uh, work. Um, last thing, just to be very concrete on, I would like to propose that we develop, uh, and again, our office is, is, is happy to work with you on this, uh, but I hope we can work together over the next 30 days, develop a one-pager uh, that, that everyone on scene can use um, that has the whole range of, you know, tenants' right to re return and the, uh, you know, urging them to contact their insurance agent if they have uh, renter's insurance and their that they can go to the rent board with questions about their right to return and the, the providing notice to their landlord of their intent to return. The land, it should have something about the landlord's obligations to secure and repair the premises. Um, information about the Red Cross vouchers, the number to call for the Red Cross, how much the Red Cross is authorized uh, to provide. Um, information about HSA, uh, the existing housing subsidy and, and potential, potential both extended shelter as well as, uh, or hotels, as well as longer term subsidies, the Good Samaritan program, uh, and, and some resources where folks can go for help. Like, we should be able to develop that. It sounds like we may have some bits and pieces of that already, 
um, but I, you know, my intent is to continue this to the call of the chair um, and, um, and continue to be in contact with all of you, but I, I'm hopeful unless one of you wants to stand up and say that 30 days would be impossible, uh, can, can, we, can we work toward uh, trying to solidify a one-pager for use at fire scenes with displaced residents within a month? I'm seeing some nods. Nobody's jumping up telling me that's impossible. So we will, we will work with you on that. Looking forward to do that, doing that. So um, thank you colleagues, and unless there are further comments or questions, and seeing none, uh, thank you all for your participation in, in this hearing. I'd like to move to continue this item to the call of the chair. Thank you. On the motion to continue this item to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, I. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, I. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Any further business before the committee? There's no further business. We are adjourned. Thank you.